What causes the distance between us and God and us and one another? And how can we learn through our relationships with one another about what's happening with our relationship with God? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, in a brand new series, as you can see, called Relationships. We're going to look at relationships with one another and relationships with God and look at how we can learn to make our relationship with God better and how to make our relationships with each other better. And we're going to continue on in Ephesians and we're going to go, we're up to chapter 5 in Ephesians. But before we do that, we're going to go back, way back to Genesis and look at the first human relationship. We're going to look at Adam and Eve because their relationship with God was close. It was so intimate and their relationship with each other was close. It was so intimate until they disobeyed God. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, there was a gap here. There was a distance here. The intimacy was lost. But you know, at the very same time that happened, the intimacy this way with each other was lost. So we can see there's a link. We can't separate the two and think that we can treat God in a certain fashion and think that's not going to affect our relationships with one another. Nor can we treat each other a certain way and think that's not going to affect our relationship with God. They're linked. We pull them apart as if they don't affect one another. But they do. So let's go right back to Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and have a look at the beginning. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh, one heart and one mind. You see, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, when he was creating man, when he was creating the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, he created them all from dust. And then the creation process changed when he created woman. He didn't create woman from dust. He created woman from man. So there's an intimate link here between man and woman to make them one One was created from the other. That's a distinct difference to anything else that he created. He had a plan right from the beginning about what our relationship should look like, especially in marriage, where we're meant to be one. But we're also meant to be one with him. And Jesus prayed that you and I, as brothers and sisters, would be one. So we need to understand oneness and being one heart if we are to strengthen our relationship with him and strengthen our relationship with one another. So God ordained and God established this idea of marriage, that we would be one, man and wife. And what we can see right from the very beginning is that Adam is a type of Jesus here, where Adam fell into a deep sleep, and in the Bible it's often looked at and regarded as death. So just as Adam 
went into a deep sleep and God took out from his side woman and made them one. Jesus too died, was pierced in his side so that you and I could be one with him. There's a oneness that is a mystery and God is trying to show us through our relationships this way in a marriage, the most intimate human relationship possible. He's trying to show us the extent of the intimacy and closeness of being one heart, not only in marriage, not only as brothers and sisters, but with him, with Jesus and the church. We've got to stop and think, what does this look like in day-to-day life? We need to understand God's word and then apply this to our relationships every single day. You see, this mystery of being one is talked about in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Paul says, and you'll recognise this from Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. So he does a switch. He says, I'm talking about man and wife. And then he says, ah, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And what he's using here is he's using a symbol to help us understand a deeper mystery. He's saying, if you want to understand the oneness and the one heart that I've actually performed, this mystery of being one in a marriage, I want you to look at Christ and the church to understand this oneness. This is the model of oneness, Christ and the church. That's what I want you to imitate in marriage. There's an extreme amount of closeness and intimacy and submission and love in Christ and the church. Do we get that in terms of that's what he's expecting in our marriage? Or do we say, that's just my husband and wife. I'll treat her that way. And this is God. Oh, I'll be good to God. We separate them. God doesn't separate them. He links them pretty closely. See, God is perfect. Someone that's perfect is a whole lot easier to love than human beings who are imperfect. So we want to do this one. God, you're so good. You're so perfect. You're so loving. You're so compassionate. Even your truth is loving. Even your judgment is loving. Uh, mm, bit awkward over here. You've been nasty to me. Don't think I want to love you. It's nothing to do with what we feel like doing. So you see, we can learn a lot from this idea of symbolism. And that's something I want to look at today as a method of Bible study as we're going through. God uses it a lot in the Bible to help us understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Remember the disciples asked Jesus, why are you speaking in parables, which is a form of symbolism? Why do you do that when he was talking about um, sowing the seed? Why talk in parables? Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, because I want to show you the great mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, which they are not going to understand. He wants to show us. And then notice what he said straight after. He says, for they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. 
So it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, to talk in parables, in symbols, in metaphors, in types. But the honour of kings is to search out a matter. You see, he's empowering us to stop, look at these symbols in his word and to find out these great mysteries. He is saying he wants us to see it. He wants us to understand it and he wants us to live it. These are great, great, deep mysteries. He is using symbolism to help us understand these deep mysteries. But we've got to search it out. It's not just, oh, that's a nice idea, moving right along. He says, search it out. Stop and look at these symbols. Look at what I'm trying to show you. So what are symbols? Symbols are something that stand for something else. And it's something that's simple or an earthly object oftentimes that help us understand a a bigger concept, a bigger idea. So probably the most common symbol that we see all the time here in Australia is our flag. Now, if you want to know what our flag symbolises, Ornella did the most amazing school assignment on the Australian flag. Go and ask Ornella after the sermon. Would that be okay? Because it was a great assignment, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. She looked at the symbolism of the Australian flag. We can learn so much, but we must search it out. You will not understand the symbolism of the Australian flag if you look and go, nice colour blue, few stars, pretty, and move on. Ornella can tell you the deeper symbolism of the Australian flag, of what it means to be Australian and what's represented on our flag. There's lots of symbols, logos. Companies use them all the time. CDM uses it. We've got a nice little round circle. We don't have it on the slide. Nice little round circle with city. That represents something. That represents us. It's not just a pretty little round circle with some pretty rings and, oh, that's nice. There's something important represented by that symbol. And in the same way, biblical symbols help us to understand a reality, a great truth, if we will search them out. If we study, you'll get that, aha, now I get it. But you must search it out. So already we've, we've kind of looked at a couple of symbols. The type of Adam, Adam being a type of Jesus. The symbol of the relationship of a husband and wife as symbolising this beautiful relationship, this oneness between Christ and the church. And we're also going to look at the parable of the soul, of, of the soul to look at a metaphor, another type of symbol. So two quick comments on interpretation guidelines. Many, many, many misinterpretations in the Bible can be related to looking at symbols and making them stand for whatever we feel like. We do that if we take symbols out of context and out of context. We must look at context. It's just a basic um, approach to Bible study, really more important in symbolism. Otherwise, we look at it and go, oh, that stands for that. Isn't that great? It doesn't fit with the context of the passage, the context of the book and the context of the Bible. If it doesn't, it's probably not right. We've got to look at context. That means look at this scripture, then look at other scriptures and see if they all say the same thing. It matches together in the Bible. He's weaved it together perfectly. So two rules of thumb, context and cotext, whenever you're looking at symbols. So back to our key verse. Back to this profound mystery of Christ and the church. You see, marriage is meant to be the most intimate relationship we have as human beings one to another. 
So we must pause and say, what is God trying to show us through the symbol of marriage so we can understand the relationship that we have with Jesus between Christ and the church? Because if you stop and think about it, the way you treat your spouse is the way you treat God. They're linked. Stop and think about how do you treat your spouse? Then stop and think, how do I treat God? Are there some similarities there? You see, the same things that cause the distance in a marriage will cause the distance with God. We don't like to think about that because God's so much easier to love than another human being. But if we really want to love God, then we've really got to love one another too. God shows us this in the book of Hosea beautifully. A beautiful symbol is Hosea and his wife Goma. Hosea represents God and Goma us, the church. And how Hosea was so faithful to keep loving Goma. And how Goma, well, her heart wandered. So the book of Hosea is a little book in the Old Testament, about 14 chapters long. Read it. Tonight when you get home and you think, what shall I study? Open the book to Hosea. It's only 14 chapters. Spend the week looking at Hosea and thinking about what's the symbolism in this book? What can I learn about making my relationships with my, in my marriage, in my family, with my friends, with my brothers and sisters? How can I change that? And how can I change my relationship with God to make it better and closer and stronger? The whole book is a symbol. It's how God loved Israel in the Old Testament and how Jesus loves us as the church. So in a moment, I'm going to show you a video clip. And in this video clip, it's a modern-day version, a very modern-day version, telling the story between Hosea and Gomer. I want you to look with one question in your mind. What is the symbolism? What is God trying to show me through this story of Hosea and Gomer? Look very closely at what Gomer's wedding clothes are trying to cover up and what that may be a symbol of. And as you're doing that, remember what Warwick said this morning about the stain. It's exactly the same message. So look at what Gomer's wedding clothes are trying to cover up and what does that represent? And then look at this relationship. Look at how Hosea's relationship is a symbol of God's love to us. And then look at Goma and how she treats Hosea and ask ourselves, does that represent something of how we treat God? But don't just look at this video because if you just look at this video, you will not see and you will not understand. Don't just hear this video. You have to listen to understand. We can look 
And we can hear, but we are not going to get the parable. We are not going to get the symbol unless we say to God, show me something here, God. I want to see the mystery of being one heart with you, with my brothers and sisters, in our marriage, in our relationships. Show me, God. I I so want to see the great mystery of one heart. So let's pray before we watch this. Let's ask God to help us do that. Lord, we come before you today and we just so want to be one heart with you. But we can't do that if we just look. Help us to see, Lord. Take the scales off our eyes. Help us to really see your beautiful love in Hosea. Lord, help us not just to hear but to listen, really listen to your voice as you speak to us as we watch this. Help us to see us in Goma, Lord. Help us to look at the wedding clothes, the wedding clothes that we have to prepare when you return Lord, what clothes are we putting on? Are we putting on a clothes with a stain? Lord Jesus, you said that we'll be thrown out. We'll be naked unless they're your clothes. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, the difference between earthly clothes and your clothing of righteousness, Jesus. We pray in your holy, holy name. Amen. You know... When you and I gave our hearts to Jesus, we got engaged to Jesus. We made a promise to him. There was a covenant between he and I, he and you. We become his bride-to-be and he becomes our bridegroom-to-be. And he doesn't give us a ring. He gives us the Holy Spirit because he said there's more to come. Let me show you my commitment to you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's a deposit guaranteeing my covenant relationship with you to show you my faithfulness. I will remain faithful. I promise you that. I give you myself in the form of the Holy Spirit. So that's the engagement process. He promises us And we promise that he is now not only our saviour but our Lord. So it's a two-way covenant. Just like Hosea, the bridegroom, in the video, and Goma, the bride. But you know, just like Goma made a decision about what she was going to wear to the wedding... We need to make a decision about what we're going to wear to our wedding to Jesus because when he returns, that's wedding time. That's the wedding. And there's only one set of clothes that will allow us to stay at the wedding. And unless we wear this one set of clothes, we'll be naked and we'll be thrown out. So you see, Goma, she decided she liked that jacket. This is a nice jacket. Looks good with the dress. But you know, there was something that that jacket was covering up. Did you notice? What was on her back? 
stain. She is stained, but the stain is not only skin deep, that stain goes all the way through to her heart. And no earthly jacket is going to change that. Do you know in this outward ceremony at a wedding, she looked gorgeous. She looked beautiful. She said all the right things. She smiled. She looked into his eyes. She said the words. She provided the ring. She wore the ring. She did all the right things externally. That's the easy bit. But you know, it won't last if there's no change of heart. It will not make the distance. You see, Gomer's clothes failed to cover, to cover her sin because her sin, the tattoos, are being drawn on her by the tattoo artist and the tattoo artist is still reigning in her heart. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. Satan is good at drawing. He likes to put stains on our clothes. He likes to put stains on our skin. And the jugular is to stain our heart. He says, you said that prayer. You did the ceremony. You did the thing that needs to start this relationship. You made all the promises. You got really excited. But you know, to really be one with me and one in heart, you've got to kick out the tattoo artist. And you can do that in the power of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and no other way. It's the only way you'll get the clothes of righteousness. There's no other way. Otherwise, we'll end up like Goma, pretending, imitating oneness in our marriage, imitating oneness with God. It's not going to work. You see, we must participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus if we want to wear the spiritual clothes of righteousness that we need for the wedding. And the beginning of that process is the crucifixion in our hearts. The flesh doesn't like it. We try to avoid it. Is there any other way we can put some clothes on? Surely if I just, you know, do what I have to do on the outside, that'll do. F.J. Hugel said, way, way back in 1940 in a book, he was a chaplain in World War I, he expresses it this way. Listen to his words. He says, Satan has no great controversy, no real quarrel with those who are content to go along professing to be Christ's while self in one form or another, sits, so to speak, upon the throne, the king, the Lord. So long as the old life is not displaced, so long as the cross is simply looked at as a distant symbol, the cross is not meant to be a symbol. The cross is meant to be an active part of our daily life. If the cross is looked at, simply looked at as a distant symbol, so long as no inner crucifixion takes place, releasing the spiritual faculties or abilities and entailing a vital union with Christ, 
in the power of his essential life. The enemy's not greatly alarmed. Just do all the outward ceremony stuff. The enemy's happy. No power there. The real power is participating in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only clothes. It's the only way to be one. You see, God cannot empower us if we will not participate in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Not read about it, not like it, not look at it, but participate in it. Paul says it this way in Romans, for you are not a true Jew. And when he's saying a true Jew, he's saying Jew really means someone who pleases God. So you're not really someone who pleases God just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. See, we can go to the wedding ceremony and say all the right things and do all the right things. That doesn't mean anything. We can do the same thing to Jesus. We can say all the right prayers and do all the outward stuff and turn up to church every week. Look, I'm early. I'm here. I'm here every week. I haven't missed a Sunday in three years. That's outward stuff. And if the outward stuff must be connected to the inward circumcision of heart or the outward stuff, it's just outward stuff. Paul goes on. He says, No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. It's not all the works. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from men. Our flesh doesn't want to be circumcised. That's uncomfortable. It hurts. It costs something. We like being comfy if our self-life is on the throne. But you know, God said way back in Deuteronomy, he said, circumcise your hearts, you stiff-necked people. God is saying it's not the outward ceremony of circumcision back then. To become a Jew, that's important. You need to circumcise your heart. It's the outward expression that needs to reflect something that's going on on the inside. You see, if there's a change of heart on the inside of us, there will be a change in our relationships with people. If there's a change of heart on the inside of us, there will be a change in what happens to our relationship with God. If you are still struggling with this, exactly the same relational issues you were struggling with 10 years ago, you've got to stop and ask yourself, have I actually participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or am I just going round and round in circles? Because God wants to change us. He wants to change the way we love one another. He wants to change the way we love him. He's expecting us to change and be more like Jesus as we grow in maturity. Not just say a prayer and then sit back and relax. Come on back, Jesus. Said the prayer. Woo! Rock on. It doesn't work like that if it's outward. He's looking for change, especially in how we love him and especially in how we love one another. 
You see, Jeremiah says the same thing. He says, break up the unplowed ground in your heart and don't sow among the thorns. He says, circumcise your heart. He says the same thing. We're going to do something radical as we hold hand with Jesus and say, Jesus, it's by your spirit that this happens. I can't do this on my own, but you can't do this unless I consent and agree and in faith take it on board and accept this beautiful work that you've done to change my heart, to be one with you. You see, we've got to stop being so stiff-necked. I want everyone to stand up. I want you to do some neck exercises with me. You need to put this ear on this shoulder, this way. Now you need to put this ear on this shoulder, this way. Okay, that was good. Very good. Now turn all the way this way and look to the left. And now turn all the way this way and look to the right. Ooh, does that loosen up your neck a bit? Good, you can sit. You know what a stiff neck symbolises in the Bible. Is it a stiff neck that gets sore? Do I have to go to the physio to fix up my neck to get my heart right? The stiff neck represents the stubbornness in our heart. The stubbornness in our heart to say, I'm carousing, I'm comfortable. I don't want to do the circumcision of my heart. No way. I don't want to do that. We're stubborn in our heart to change. We don't want to change. Change involves cost. Change involves pain. So listen carefully to how we become one heart with Jesus and one heart with one another. The very first step, we are not going to get anywhere without the first step. The very first step says, We need to pray. We must pray. We cannot do this without Jesus. And what are we going to say? Pray and ask God to reveal the condition of the soil in your heart. Say, God, is my heart so hard? Is my heart disappointed? Is my heart distracted? Or is my heart fruitful? You see... The way to talk to God and the way to think about what condition our heart is in, look at your relationships with each other. Look and think about your relationship with your spouse. Look and think about your relationship in your families. Look and think about your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look and think about your relationships with people at work, with people you buy the milk from. Every single relationship that you have, people you interact with every day is giving you an indicator of your heart. They're not unrelated. It's the core of how we obey God. Love me and love one another. Look at how you're interacting with people. Look at how you're loving people. You see, it's a scary thing to do this. But if we don't do this, We'll do a goma. We'll cover up the sin and the tattoos in our life with a nice-looking jacket, which will let us down. 
which has no power at all. So stop. Think about, do I have a hard heart? You know, a hard heart, it it, it just doesn't know how to love. Because a hard heart is hard to other things, like God's word, God's messages. You see, a hard heart is so self-centered. It's all about me. A hard heart doesn't know how to respond to God's love because it's too hard and wrapped up in its own self-life and it doesn't know how to love others. It's too wound up in me. It's too hard to love others because I'm too wound up in me. Sure, a hard heart can feel affection. So if my spouse brings me flowers, yeah, I feel the love. Maybe a wife cooks a good meal. The husband is feeling the love. But it's all self-centered. It's all about me. If you do something for me, I'll love you. It's all conditional. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. But only because I benefit out of this. That's a hard heart. The seed will not go into a hard heart and grow to produce fruit. It's too hard. Now, a hard heart doesn't know how to love because self is still on the throne. Our marriages will not flourish and our relationship with Jesus will not flourish with a hard heart. What about a disappointed heart? Well, you see, a disappointed heart, it... It gives up on love. It's like initially, when you first hear about Jesus and meet Jesus, yes, he's done so much for me. Oh, this is so great. I just can't believe it. All of a sudden, I understand the sin in my life and I need you. And oh, you did all that for me, Jesus. And this is just fantastic. And I can't wait. I just can't wait to read your word. And I've got so much to say to you in conversation and prayer. And this is just so great. I'm so excited. Just like when we first start going out with the love of our life for our marriage. Oh, it's so excited. There's so much to say. Oh, so exciting. But you know, at some point, we're going to be disappointed because people aren't perfect. And the world will say, oh, the romance is gone. That means you're not in love anymore. You know what God says? He says, good. You've just started to learn what it is to love. Romance is a gift, but love perseveres through the good and the bad. Self will say, I didn't sign up for trouble. I signed up for excitement. Self will say, get out, find another one. God says, now's the time to learn about love, to learn about the real love that only comes through the power of me living in your heart, being one with you. So maybe you don't have a hard heart that doesn't know how to love. Maybe you don't have a disappointed heart that never gets disappointed in anybody. Maybe it's a distracted heart. See, a distracted heart is way too busy to love. Man, there's so much to do. Whew, only live one life. Go for it. Life's not a dress rehearsal. Oh, so much happening out there. Oh, now let's see. There's the worries of this world too. Um, there's the deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, and then there's the desires of what I want too. Oh, man, so much to do. Whoa. Let me think about that. 
If we're so busy and so distracted with everything else, what's going to happen with our relationship with Jesus? If we're so busy and so distracted with everything else, what's going to happen with our relationships with one another? You see, there's so much to distract us. So much to take us away from spending time with Jesus. So much from taking our time away from loved ones. The weeds will choke all the time and energy that you have unless you recognise you have a distracted heart. Distracted heart, way too busy, it's choked. And then there's the fruitful heart. The fruitful heart, as it suggests, produces fruit. It's good soil. Soil that's been ploughed up, it's not hard. Soil that's been ploughed up, it doesn't have any weeds. Soil that's been ploughed out doesn't have the rocks. So the plant can grow. It doesn't wither when things get hard with the hot sun. And it produces fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Now, isn't that list of fruit of the Spirit in Galatians beautiful? Now, revisit that list and look at the relationships in your life. Do they, when you think about the relationships in your life, do they exhibit, reflect and represent love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what a fruitful heart produces in our relationships through the Spirit of God. If one of those hearts sounds familiar to you, then we've got to move on to step two. And step two is to pray. Step two is pray and ask God to empower you to participate in Jesus' death on the cross. The flesh must die for the spirit to live so that we can produce fruit of the spirit. It must. The two cannot coexist. That's a divided heart. You do not ever, ever want to be in this place of a divided heart. We must die every single day. This isn't a once-off. This is every day. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Dead to it. You see, we're meant to say no to ungodliness through the grace of God until Jesus returns. So, how do we die to self in our day-to-day interactions and our relationships? How do we do that? Let me give you an illustration. Of course, because I'm preaching on this, God will most definitely teach me in the week leading up to preaching this. I don't think I've ever preached where he hasn't. So there's always an illustration from my week available. My son, James. Isn't he a darling? On the outside, perfect, pure, kind, So, you know how it's been raining all week? When it rains all week, the washing pile's up in my place. Did the washing pile up in your place this week too? Okay, but I'm watching the weather forecast and I'm thinking, rain, 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 and then sun's coming out on Friday. I don't work Friday, so in my little head, I'm setting up some plans. Whoop, I'm going to get this washing done. Just leave it all pile up. And then Friday, I've got the day off. I'm washing. That's my little schedule in my head. Don't worry about the washing till Friday. 
watching the weather, yep, all coming together. All right, so I thought I'd get super organised. Thursday night, I'll say to James, can you just change your sheets now? And then I'll have them all ready. So then first thing in the morning, put the washing machine on, get all the washing done, out on, get it dry, back in, all sorted. So no, I don't feel like washing my sheets tonight. I don't want to do that tonight. Oh, all right, I'll tell you what. Well, if you don't do it tonight, do it first thing in the morning. Because if you do it first thing in the morning, then I'll have the sheets in time to put on the line. Yeah, yeah, I came home. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So, get the first load of washing done. I've got a timer thing where I can set it off at 5.30 or whatever. Got it out in the line. Cruising right on task. My desire to get everything done is all in action. James's door is shut and he's still no sheets. So, I knock on the door. James, remember I asked you for the sheets? Yeah, yeah, Mum, I'm getting dressed. I'm just getting dressed. Okay. So, I'm thinking, well, I won't go in. He's getting dressed. Okay, well, look, can you just hurry up? Yeah, Mum, I'm getting dressed, okay? I'm getting dressed. Yeah, remember I asked you... So this is a conversation between the door, through the door. Remember I asked you for the sheets? I'm doing the washing. Can you hurry up? Yeah, okay, I'll just get dressed and then I'll give them to you. So I'm standing there, the washing basket. Can't hear anything. I reckon I stood there for a whole six minutes. Do you know how long six minutes is? Six minutes is an eternity. My schedule, I've got four loads of washing of clothes and two loads of washing with sheets. That's six loads of washing I've got to get out on the line, get it dry and back in by what, five o'clock? <laughs> so I'm knocking on the door now, bashing on the door now. James! Then I hear this uh, sort of dawdling over to the door, opens the door. He has... His school shorts on, his school shirt on, and his tie tied perfectly and all neatly in place. I saw that tie and I saw red. You spent all that time in there fixing up your tie and I'm standing out here and I'm waiting for the sheets. I was like, what is wrong with you? Remember I said last night that you wanted the sheets on and I couldn't get the sheets on. Now I said, you said you'd do it this morning and ripped the sheets off and out. James is just standing there like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with mum? I don't think you've ever seen me like that. I was so dotting. I grabbed those sheets and I went downstairs and I put it in there. Anyway, I was walking up the steps, upstairs, and my neck was a bit stiff. And I thought, that's why I've got a headache. I thought, that'd be right. So I went and had two Nurofen. I had a big glass of Gatorade. I warmed up the heat pad. I went upstairs, went to bed, put the heat pad on. <clears throat> My neck is so sore. Yes, I know you know the analogy, but it's just so sore. So I lay there. James very cheerily yells out from downstairs, Bye, Mum, have a good day. <laughs> I said, Bye. So I'm lying there for about an hour because it, it is so sore. And I started thinking, Oh, okay, so what day is it? Friday. What, what's, okay, so I've got the washing on today. Blah, blah, I've got to get ready because I work on Saturday, so I've got to do some paperwork. Oh, Friday. Friday is James's guitar lesson day. So on Fridays, we, being the beautiful parents we are, go and pick him up from school on Fridays so he doesn't have to carry his big guitar. I thought, ah, a little thought. I might be late. I might make him wait. He made me wait. I think I'll make him wait. What do we do with that thought? 
now, at this point, this is when we must participate in the crucifixion of ourself. It's dead spiritually. Jesus did all the work. He's just trying to tell you it's still alive. You see, that's returning evil for evil. That's not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is to return good for evil. So thankfully, Jesus reminds me of that after I have this little thought. I go, it's probably not the right thing to do. No. So I think good for evil. So I think to myself, well, I know James really likes, there's this great patisserie, we have chocolate croissant. I'll go and get him a chocolate croissant. I'll get him the chocolate croissant. So when I pick him up, I can give him the chocolate croissant to say, I love you, James, but I don't love your behaviour. I need to talk to you about your behaviour, but I'm going to give you the chocolate croissant to let you know I don't actually hate you as much as you probably thought that from this morning's little performance. So I go really early to make sure I'm not late because I didn't want to do the late thing. Went really early. So I'm there at school at 5 past 3, finishes at 10 past 3. I think, cool, got chocolate croissant in the back. All sorted. Killed it. Another idea. (laughs) He doesn't know how pinged off I was and he doesn't know that my schedule was put straight out and he doesn't know that I had six loads of washing to do. I'm going to tell him first. Me first. I'm going to tell him how it was for me. He needs to know how bad it was for me. He needs to know how upset I was and he needs to know how that affected me. You see, the tattoo artist is persistent. He's persistent. He will continue to tempt us. He will continue to say, flesh, what about me? He will continue to say, oh, poor me. I have to say, at this point, no to ungodliness. I'm going to die to that. It's got to be nailed to the cross. And I know that it can be nailed to the cross because I have the power of the resurrected Jesus to say no. So I say no to that and say, not me first, others first. When I discuss this with James, it's tell me how it was for you. What on earth were you thinking about in the bedroom when I said come out? Is there possibly a miscommunication going on here? Was it possible I was being a little bit irrational? Maybe I could have put the basket down, done something else and come back. There's a whole range of options here. But, you know, if I don't kill that, if I don't say no to ungodliness, I've just put self back on the throne. It's been taken away. It's trying to tell you it hasn't. Gone. Dead. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Step three, pray again. Step three is pray and ask God to empower you to participate in the power of Jesus' resurrection. It's the grace of God that will empower you to say no. It's reckon yourself to be dead to sin but alive to Christ. Step four, now we've got to do this in our day-to-day interactions. We have to say it in love. We've got to talk to God and talk to others about what really matters about God's will regarding the burdens on his heart and then you talk to him about the burdens on your heart. Talk to God about the joys, his joys and your joys. 
talk to God about your life purpose and direction, his life purpose and direction. Swap something meaningful with God first and then with others. The problem is if you don't have this conversation with God first, others will tell you what your burden should be. Others will tell you what your joy should be and others will be very happy to tell you what they think your life purpose and direction should be. If you don't talk to God first, you don't have anything to filter that information. You'll just gobble it up. Is this in line with what God said to me? Is this in line with his word? Or will I just say, oh, he or she seems to be like, oh, very close to God. I'll just assume that and I'll just go with what they say. We've got to be careful. Yes, we're meant to take wise counsel. Proverbs tells us again and again, listen to wise counsel, but you must discern who has wise counsel. Look at the life of the person who's speaking to you. Do they have fruit in their life, in their relationships? Do they exhibit self-control and gentleness in their relationships? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Are they patient in their relationships? We don't want to get duped by foolish counsel from someone who doesn't have a changed heart. We're meant to just be fruit inspectors, nothing else. Be careful who you take wise counsel from. Talk to God first. And step five, the last one. We've got to talk it, but we've got to walk it. We've got to do it in love. Love God by our actions. Read, understand and obey God's word in your life. Love others by your actions. Use whatever gift you have received. And we've all got them. They're gifts differing. Whatever gift you've received to serve others, especially in kind acts of service. And the kindest act of service of all, forgiveness. It's the hardest because the flesh hates it. And we can only do it through the power of the resurrection Jesus, of his spirit in our hearts. So in the power of his spirit, seek forgiveness and freely give forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness in prayer will clothe you for the wedding. Seeking his power to forgive others will prepare your heart to spend eternity with your heavenly spouse, Jesus. You see, even if our heart is broken by the hurts and the pains that we've been through, If we have one heart with Jesus, he will empower you to forgive. The flesh doesn't want to. The flesh wants to give revenge. The flesh says, you are late for me, James. I'll be late for you. I want to retaliate. The flesh doesn't want to forgive. Forgiveness is the litmus test of a changed heart. So I want to return to Hosea. I'm going to show you another quick video and then we're done. But this is now a follow-up to what you saw when they got married. What does Hosea do next? He's found out his wife has been unfaithful to him. This clip shows you. Remember, Hosea symbolizes the way God loves us. How does God love us when we sin, when we let the tattoo artist go for it? And note Gomer's tattooed back. Note that it's no longer covered. I'm thinking that maybe Goma decided to do the very 
first step that we need for one heart with Jesus. Examine our heart, expose our heart, so it can be covered with the righteous clothes of Jesus. Now watch Hosea show us how to forgive someone, just like God forgives us. I want you to close your eyes and come before Almighty God, our Almighty God. Our Almighty God, the one who saves. We sang today, Lord, that you reign, that our God reigns in our heart. We sang those words today. Lord, you reign in our heart. Lord, may they not be empty words. Lord, may we not just be singing to show you an outward appearance of saying that you are really reigning in our hearts. Lord, help us, forgive us, Lord Jesus, for breaking your heart. Lord Jesus, when all you do is to love us and extend your arm to us and do everything for us. Lord Jesus, help us to participate in the mighty crucifixion, the crucifixion that allows us to be free from sin, from stain and wrinkle. But Lord Jesus, we don't just want to look at the cross and say, what a pretty picture. Lord, help us participate in your cross. Lord Jesus, help us know that we need to nail the self to the cross every day. Help us die to sin every day. Help us in the power of your most magnificent grace to say no to ungodliness every time those ideas enter our head. Lord Jesus, help us to say no, turn our back and in faith, Lord Jesus, take hold of the wonderful power of a resurrected Jesus that resides in our heart today. Lord Jesus, may we never have a divided heart, Lord Jesus. We just want to obey you. Lord Jesus, help us today. Help us look at the condition of the soil in our heart as the first step to being one with you. Help us to love you. And Lord Jesus, help us to see that we don't love you if we don't love one another. And we don't love one another if we don't love you first. Lord Jesus, help us today. Help us to be honest. Help us to be real. Help us to really live the life that you created us to live. Lord Jesus, prepare our hearts for your return. Lord Jesus, help us to put on the wedding clothes which you supplied for us, which you died to provide to us. Lord Jesus, let us not just be Christians in an outward ceremony or an outward appearance in each of our hearts. Convict us right now, Lord Jesus, of what you want us to change. Right now, Jesus, of those relationships we need to fix up. Right now, Jesus, if there's somebody we need to forgive. Lord Jesus, let us not go another day without forgiving those, Lord Jesus, that our flesh just so doesn't want us to forgive. Lord Jesus, we ask this through the power of your mighty, mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.